Today we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote this letter from prison. And so I want to open with a couple quotes describing the living conditions within a first century Roman prison. According to one first century historian, the prison is a deep underground dungeon, dark and rancid from the large numbers committed to the place. With so many shut up in such close quarters, the poor wretches were reduced to the appearance of brutes. And since their food and everything pertaining to their other needs was all so foully commingled, a stench so terrible assailed anyone who drew near it that it could scarcely be endured. According to a modern historian, Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked and then flogged, a humiliating, painful, and bloody ordeal. The bleeding wounds went untreated. Prisoners sat in painful leg or wrist chains. Mutilated, blood-stained clothing was not replaced even in the cold of winter. Most cells were dark, especially the inner cells of a prison. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, and sickening stench from few toilets made sleeping difficult and waking hours miserable. It's estimated that Paul may have spent up to 25% of his missionary career in a Roman prison. But with all that in mind, with, with all of that in mind, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing has been a consistent theme within this letter, and for some of us, if we're honest, uh, the, the constant refrain can be a bit annoying because it's not that easy. But Paul is not asking us to feel great all the time. Paul is asking us to rejoice all the time. And that's a key distinction. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But at the same time, the Bible presents Jesus as the source of all true joy. So however we define joy and rejoicing, our definition must be broad enough to encompass both sorrow and grief. If when Paul says, rejoice, you hear him saying, get over it, you are not hearing what Paul is actually saying. We, we should not picture Paul in prison with a big smile on his face, turning to his languishing cellmate to say, isn't this great? What, what a wonderful day. Rejo- celebrate with me. No, we, we should picture a hungry, exhausted filthy, near to death, yet quiet and contented man. A man who knows that even when he feels abandoned by God, he is not abandoned by God. God is at work in him, and God is at work through him all of the time. Not only that, but but I think we need to again remember that Paul is not writing this letter to an individual. He is writing to a community of people. So when he says rejoice, he is first of all referring to what ought to be the character of their corporate public witness. As Philippi grew increasingly intolerant toward the Christians, 
as social pressures intensified and as the Roman Empire encroached upon their worship, to, to rejoice and to celebrate was one of the most powerful things they could do together. Even when they, as a community, felt abandoned by God. They were not abandoned by God. They could know that God was at work in them and at work through them all the time, which is always cause for rejoicing. Even in our sorrow, even in our grief, even in our hunger and our exhaustion, even in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is present and active and always, always, always good. The immediate application here is to join us tonight for our annual Thanksgiving feast, to rejoice and to celebrate. But Paul continues, uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word could also be translated as gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. But the idea is forbearance and patience and restraint and self-control. In the words of Martin Luther King, we know that sacrifice is involved, that brutality will be faced, that savage conduct will need to be endured, that slick trickery will need to be overcome. But we are resolutely prepared for all of this. We are prepared to meet whatever comes with love, with firmness, and with unyielding nonviolence. That's something of what Paul has in mind when he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But how? How can we remain reasonable and gentle in the midst of crisis and opposition and and maybe even persecution? Well, because, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. These days, uh, different people think radically different things about Rudy Giuliani. But as the mayor of New York City on September 11, 2001, almost everyone respected him and has generally agreed that he was a very effective leader in a time of crisis. Giuliani was a calming presence for the citizens of New York City. Following uh, the attacks, he he was out front and highly visible. His demeanor was calm and composed, and his messaging was clear and optimistic. So yes, he was a calming presence for the people. And and I think Paul is describing something very similar in these verses. The Philippians were facing a major crisis, but the Lord was at hand. The Lord is at hand. Surely, in the midst of a crisis, if, if the calming presence of a fallible man like Rudy Giuliani can give us confidence, then the calming presence of a sovereign God can give us confidence. The Lord is at hand. The Prince of Peace is at hand. And therefore, we can be reasonable and gentle. We can even be free from anxiety. Verse 6, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In the ancient world, anxiety was a way of life. And in many ways, though, though for very different reasons, modern Christians have that in common with the early church. Anxiety is a way of life. It's one of those constants throughout the ages, which is why the Bible has so much to say about it. The word worry is derived from an old English word meaning to strangle. If you've, if you've ever struggled with anxiety, you, you understand that. But there is no greater threat to the experience of joy. Anxiety will rob you of joy like nothing else. These days, we've identified a phobia for virtually everything under the sun. Everything is a potential source of anxiety. And, and the world around us has really no idea what to do with that. Know your own power, they say. Trust yourself. Remind yourself that you are worthy. Let go of all the negative energy. And some of that is, is good in part. But, but we cannot just will ourselves to not worry. We cannot just will ourselves out of anxiety. There's a thing called ironic process theory. Uh, the, the idea is that deliberate attempts to suppress a thought will make that thought more likely to occur, to surface. And this is also known as the white bear problem. Uh, it, it's demonstrated this way. Do not think of a polar bear. Do not, really, do not think of a polar bear. Do not picture in your mind a polar bear. Do not consider the attributes of a polar bear. You can't, you can't do it. The only way to stop thinking about a polar bear is to fill your mind with something else. And the same goes with anxiety. Picture Picture your, your heart and your mind as, as a deep well. Anxiety is like a ball floating at the bottom of that deep well. You can't just reach down and grab the ball. The well is too dark. The well is too deep. And so to remove that ball, you have to fill the well. Anxiety cannot simply be removed. It has to be replaced. Anxiety has to be crowded out. So how, how do we fill the well? The Word of God gives us three ways. Four, actually. We'll start with three. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. In everything, Paul says, in the, in the big things and in the small things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word translated as prayer here refers to communication with God as an act of devotion and intimacy. The word translated as supplication is similar but even stronger. It's often translated as petition. When we petition for something, we are demanding change. So to the anxious Philippians, Paul says, let your requests be made known to God with 
prayer to God as a loving father with supplication or petition demanding change. And then finally, with thanksgiving. Okay. There's no secret meaning to the word thanksgiving. Um, it means thanksgiving. But it's, it's worth noting that Paul assumes that no matter the, the circumstances, there will always be something for which to give thanks. So, this is how we fill the well. This is how we crowd out anxiety, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with gratitude. But Paul makes a, Paul makes a pretty powerful promise here. He says, when we pray and when we petition and when we give thanks, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Again, this, this does not necessarily mean that we will immediately feel better. But this is a promise we can cling to. In my prayer, in my supplication, in my thanksgiving, the God of peace is guarding me. The God of peace is at hand. I may not feel that way, but he is guarding me. I have nothing to fear. Anxiety prevents us from rejoicing always, and so, and so we fight for joy by filling our wells with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. But there's still at least one, one more way to fill our wells, and Paul addresses it in, in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, this verse is often used to advocate for only watching G-rated films. Um, and of course, we should be careful uh, not to fill our hearts and minds with sin and darkness. Um, but that's not primarily what this verse is talking about. When Paul says, think about these things, he's saying, take inventory of these things. Take inventory of everything good. Don't, don't dwell upon the bad things. Dwell upon the good things. Fill your well with the good things. Fill your heart and your mind with thoughts and feelings that lend themselves to joy. This applies to everything. But first and foremost, in, in this context, I think Paul is talking about the thoughts we entertain concerning others. Are we nursing grievances? Are we justifying our resentments? Are we filling our hearts and minds with unspoken gossip? Dwell on the good, Paul says. What is good and honorable and excellent about the people around you? Give thanks to God for them. If you have to have justice every time you are offended in the slightest, you are not going to enjoy life very much. If you cannot forgive and just move on, 
you will eventually wear out your closest relationships. To truly enjoy life within a community of sinners, you have to be able and willing to cover certain things with grace. This is immediately applicable for the church community, but this also applies to your marriage and to your roommates and to your coworkers and to your kids. And if you're a kid, this applies to your parents and your siblings and your friends at school. In every relationship, we need to be dwelling upon the good things. If we are to be a rejoicing community, we've got to dwell upon the good in one another. And listen, there is so much good to dwell upon within this community. Just look around. This community is filled with honorable people and just people and pure people and lovely and commendable and excellent people. This community is filled with people who are worthy of praise. And if you, if you can't see that, you may be filling your well with the wrong things. If you can't see the good all around you, you may be dwelling too much upon the bad. So, to summarize, Paul is writing to a Philippian church in crisis, and he says, be a rejoicing and celebratory community, be a reasonable and gentle and self-controlled community, do not be anxious about anything, but be prayerful and grateful, and dwell upon the best in one another. These are the things that will make for peace. These are the things that will make for peace. The God of peace was eager to bear these fruits in the Philippian church, and he is eager to bear these fruits in our church as well. God promises peace. God promises peace. But listen, he also commands joy. Commands it. The two go hand in hand, the promise of peace and the command of joy. If we accept the Bible as the word of God, then we have to accept these verses as the word of God. Paul's letter to the Philippians is repeatedly calling us to rejoice as though joy is in some sense a choice. But I'll say it again. This is not a call to perpetual happiness. This is a call to perpetual joy a joy that can, can encompass even our sorrow. This is a resilient joy. It's a defiant joy in the midst of opposition. C.S. Lewis was married to a woman who just so happened to be named Joy. Um, but Joy was dying of cancer. And C.S. Lewis said this in a letter to his priest. He said, we are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. Those are the words of a man 
who had learned freedom from anxiety. Those are the words of a man who could entrust everything to the Lord. The words of a man who knew the peace of God, even in the midst of a crisis, he found joy in the calming presence of a sovereign God. Only the gospel can inspire that type of joy. If God can bring a whole world of good out of the crucifixion of his son, then surely he can make something good out of our pain and suffering. It's the calming presence of a sovereign God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God of peace, we come to you in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. We trust you. We do trust you, but we ask you to to teach us to trust you more. Help us to trust you more. Jesus, teach us joy. Teach us to rejoice always. Teach us joy like yours that encompasses even our sorrow. And Holy Spirit, make us, make this church a rejoicing and celebratory community. Inspire a spirit of prayer. Inspire a spirit of gratitude. And help us to fill our wells with the good things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.